So before we start today's episode, we need to say something about the sonification competition, where entries are due November 18th, and Will is going to give us an overview of how he sonified his data with two-tone. Do you want to take it away, Will? Absolutely. In fact, I'm going to do sonification live for you all right now, just to show how quick and easy it can be. I'm on the edge of my seat. <sighs> I'm excited. Okay. So, one of our favorite tools for sonifying data is called Two-Tone because it is super easy to use, has an online interface, and watch this, you can sonify data in two minutes or less. So, we're going to do Two-Tone and Google that. I'm setting the timer now. Two minutes. All right. Two-Tone.io. We're going to hit Start App and... Click here to continue. It's going to need some information. Enter your name, Will. Enter your email. You can have that one. We're going to use it for data sonification. What was, what was that email, Will? Don't worry about it. And would you like to receive our newsletter? Absolutely. Give me all the newsletters. No feedback at this time. Here we go. All right. Get started. All right. We're going to drag and drop some data. So I got some data. It's in a bunch of folders. What kind of data is it? You're going to have to listen and find <laughs> out. You see, it's Ooh. from 1968. No cheating. <laughs> All right. So that is loaded in. And then it's walking me through the options on how to get started. But I know all this, so I'll skip. Data One source. minute. I don't want time. I want flux. And instrument, piano, let's open up some extended options. Um, and let's let's just let's just hit play and see how this bad boy sounds. A little loud. I feel like I'm at a piano recital. From like a four-year-old. Okay, too slow. Bottom right hand corner, tempo. Master tempo, 60 is definitely too slow. Let's let's speed this up. Let's go 200. Let's just go for it. All right. Fifteen seconds. Not too exciting, but here comes the fun part. Yeah, those are real. And now it's getting higher. And there's a little more, but it's about the same from there on out. All right, how did I do? I sonified my data. That was two minutes and ten seconds. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> now, it's done. I have sonified my data. Does it sound super great? Maybe not. So let's, let's see if we can improve it just a little bit. I'm going to change the track tempo to two times and arpeggiate it. So it's going to put notes in between that fill using the key that we've chosen. We'll see if it sounds a little bit better. I'll start it kind of in the middle here where it gets interesting. And then you can hear it's about to go higher. melodic maybe it's a little harder to follow but you can hear it's it's kind of low then it has some spikes and then it gets high mm -hmm. if we want to we can do more fun with this we can change the key let's make it a minor key and let's change the instrument to the electric guitar because why not and rewind it a little bit and see what it sounds like that does not sound wait good. for it <laughs> nope <laughs> It's funky. He is speed. He is power. <laughs> yeah, should we do uh, uh, E Mixolydian with uh, th three times tempo across three octaves? I thought you'd never ask. And we'll change the instrument to church organ and we'll up it to 300 beats per minute. Just absolutely blow this thing to uh, 
Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I think we've had our fun, but can you do sonification in two minutes or less? Yes, you can. Can you make it sound good in five minutes or less? I think the answer is yes, because I think this was pretty great. So I'm submitting this. Yeah, I, I mean, you guys are going to have to review all my beautiful submissions because now that I know how easy it is. You're the principal competitor. If Will is the principal competitor, it shouldn't be that hard to win the sonification competition. But still put your best foot forward. Yeah, you can do it on your lunch break. And don't forget to submit by the deadline, November 18th. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. This is still well underway on astrobytes.org, but today's episode is a bit different, where instead of discussing papers only with associated astrobytes, we'll hear from some of the experts in the field, our co-hosts, on what they consider to be landmark papers in their fields of research. We'll still call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I am a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, and I study ways of understanding the high redshift universe, both observationally and theoretically. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study explosive transients and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 63, our take on landmark papers, part one. This will be our first episode in a series of two, where we don't discuss papers with particular astrobytes written about them. We'll be diving into some extremely important papers in the subfields of our co-hosts. So Alex and Will will go first in this week's episode, and Kirsten and I will go in the next episode in part two. We'll see which one's better. <laughs> oh, so now it's a competition too? <laughs> Listeners, submit your own landmark paper to see if you can beat <laughs> Will and Alex. <laughs> landmark paper competition 2023. So let's dive into some introductory questions. I guess it'll mostly just be one question and a bit more personal research focused this time for Will and Alex. I feel like maybe we all have the gist of what your research is about, hearing about it a bit in different Astro Soundbites episodes in the past, but can you each give us a short summary on your research and describe some of the main problems that you're working on? Sure. And again, I'm setting the timer for two minutes. <laughs> see if I can do this in two minutes. <laughs> okay. I, as you know, study the physics of young supernovae through their early signatures and their explosion environments. And as I'll talk about today, this actually has a ton of historical contexts. We've been correlating the properties of an explosion with its nearby stellar populations for decades because we still haven't gotten to the point where we can catch on fast enough to be able to actively study a star from the final months of its explosion through the actual explosion to study the mechanism itself directly. Now, we tend to think of stars as these isolated systems, but of course they're sources of chemical and thermal feedback in the galaxies that host them, and they connect directly to the stars they come from as are found in different rates in different galaxies. We're really lucky that there's this constant interplay between scales like this, because if there wasn't, it would be significantly harder to study supernovae, because all we really have at the end, end of the day are unresolved mm. points of light that change color and get dimmer over time. So some of the major questions that I've been asking in the past few months as I applied for postdoctoral positions are, there are tons, such as... Where do transients of all kinds tend to form in their host galaxies, and what can that tell us about the type of phenomenon that we're going to see? Type 1a supernovae are these standardizable explosions used for cosmology. It's not quite known why they're correlated with their host galaxies. Is that related to specifically the stars they come from, or is that an observational effect? How do most explosions of type 1a detonate? Do they explode at the surface of the star or at the center of the star? We still don't know. It might have different observational consequences. How do massive stars behave in the last years of their life? There are tons of questions in these areas. Oh, I'm out of time. Not your phone ringing. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was, no, that was my timer. I'm out of time, but 
obviously tons of questions in this domain, and uh, it's a really exciting time to be studying them. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it in your landmark paper today. Definitely. Do you want to take it away, Will, with yours? Sure. Alex, are you setting a timer? Two minutes, starting now. (laughs) (laughs) So as you know, I studied the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune, and the only spacecraft that has ever been near them was Voyager 2 in the late 80s. And what Voyager 2 found is that both upper atmospheres of the ice giants are extremely hot. And as we know, they're ice giants. They have ice in their clouds in the lower atmosphere. So no one really understands how it's possible these distant planets could be heated to such hot temperatures. And better yet, I'm actually skeptical about the Voyager 2 results. The people who did the original analysis wrote about it in their papers. There were some questions around these techniques and things might be revisited. But the problem when you only have one data point is you have no reason to doubt it. Now, in comes another method, Earth-based stellar occultations, which is the method that I use in my research and what I'm going to be talking a lot about today. And this has a way of measuring upper atmospheric temperatures in the outer solar system as well. The problem is historically these measurements have been at odds with Voyager, and everyone's solution Mm. to that problem has been to ignore them. Because when you have just Voyager and Voyager says one thing, well, then that's the answer. What I'm trying to do in my research is reprocess these archival observations, combine them with some new ones that I've taken of my own, and produce modified versions of the temperature structures in the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. So the basic question really is, what is the temperature in the upper atmosphere? Are reported temperatures consistent with each other? I don't think they are, actually. And then what does that say about the way that heat and energy transport in the atmospheres of the ice giants? Wow. So it's it's not the Hubble tension. It's the Neptune tension. Voyager versus <laughs> stellar occultations. Very interesting. And you had 10 seconds to spare. That's great. Oh, this is perfect. I can tell you for 10 seconds about my childhood and upbringing. And your time is up. <laughs> Thank you both for those very interesting but quick two minutes or so, I guess. I guess Will won this one. Quick summaries of your field. I'm excited to hear firsthand about some landmark papers from people deep in the field of research. Will, do you want to go ahead and go first with your paper? Sure, happy to. Alex, how much time do I have for this one? Two minutes on the (laughs) clock. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Now, the paper I am going to be talking about is not written in English. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce the title. Just give me a minute to get into my uh, best accent. Here we go. That'll be one of your two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Diamètre, appletissement et propriété optique de la haute atmosphère de Neptune d'après l'occultation de la toile BD, I can't say numbers in French, 174388. And translated into English, that is diameter, flattening, and optical properties of the upper atmosphere of Neptune as derived from the occultation of BD 174388. So, this paper is in French, and it was written by Jean Kovalevsky and Frontesque Link. I can't say Link with a French accent. And it was published on the 15th of April, 1969, just four days, or five days, before the moon landing. I guess it depends what time zone, right? The paper is published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. It's actually volume two. So the journal had just been started the previous year, and I did a little poking around. International journals in Europe did not exist before Astronomy and Astrophysics. They were all splintered up by country and by language. And so they came together in a big meeting the year before and decided that they were going to spearhead the first European astronomy journal. And all of the countries that were involved would give up their own country journals and work together. And the French took the lead in financing and supporting this. So they allowed publications in French initially and German as well. Um, But it became clear, according to the Wikipedia page, quote, it soon became clear that for a given author, the papers in English were cited twice as often as those in other languages. It seems like it was the kind of thing where they weren't mandating English be the language of publication. It just happened over time where people realized if they publish in English, then their papers get cited more and get taken more seriously. 
So that's some background on the journal. And so a little bit of my connection to this paper. When I was preparing for my oral qualifying exam a few years ago, what I really wanted to do is get to the crux of every technique that I was using in my research. And a lot of the work that I do is based on an important paper from 2003, which was actually you know, part two of a paper from 1992. So I kept jumping back, following everyone's citations from you know, 92 back to 78, to 74, to 73, to 72, to 70. Finally, I found this paper from 69. And there are further back papers in the field of stellar occultations, but this is actually like the earliest that completes the mathematical solution for the majority of complexity of what I do. So a stellar occultation is when a nearby body blocks light to a distant star. The nearby body is a solar system object, and the distant star it actually could be the sun if you were far enough away from the sun, but in my case, it's not. It's stars. And the difference between that and the transit method, in the transit method, the star and the planet, or star and star if it's a binary eclipsing star, they are close, and the distance to them is far. In this case, we are comparatively close to the planet, and the star is the thing that's really far away. So the star is a point source in my technique, but in the transit method, the star is actually a disk being blocked by a smaller disk passing in front of it. In this case, it's not blocking part of the star. The atmosphere of the planet refracts all the starlight coming in in like a beam over time, changing the way the starlight moves through the atmosphere. And the effect of it is to primarily dim the starlight as it passes into denser and denser regions of the atmosphere. Because it refracts more, it spreads out, it bends over a larger area of space, therefore the light collected decreases. So I actually had the pleasure of observing a stellar occultation myself a few weeks ago, and I created a really cool little animation showing what it looks like. This one was Uranus, and so I will put that up on my website, which I've been meaning to do, and drop a link in the show notes so people can look at that. Could also sonify it in two-tone. I very well might, <laughs> but <laughs> not yet. This is just secretly a competition to sonify your data for the masses. The solution, the first time the idea of stellar occultations and refraction in an atmosphere could be solved was in 1904. But they basically found that the techniques of the day were too primitive. You needed uh, high-speed data recording techniques couldn't be done. A 1953 paper could said to be the real first, but it had so many simplifications. It basically made one temperature measurement. And so in 1969, what these authors did that was so brilliant was they took a similar math and physics problem that was not a stellar occultation. It came from seismology and radio occultations, which was developed for spacecraft. So similar physics, but different science. And then they applied it two stellar occultations solved the math through and put together the first set of solutions. And the way that it works is it's essentially solving what's called an inverse problem, where we measure the light coming from the star, but we really care about the properties of the planet that the light passed through. The problem is, if you can imagine a, a layer of atmosphere, you know, picture a ball with thin shells around it, Imagine a beam of light cutting through those shells. It doesn't just pass through one layer of shell because it has to go through the top layer to get to the second layer to get to the third layer and then it comes out the other side. So all the layers are kind of confused in the data. They're all in there and we have to disentangle them. That's what they figured out how to do. This kind of reminds me of x-ray tomography where you're measuring the changes in x-ray intensity from the start of a person through the other side of them and then need to use that difference in intensity to reconstruct the mapping of what materials inside your body. That's probably also an inverse problem in the same sense. I, yeah, I've never thought of your particular problem as tomography, but it's an inverse problem. It's an interesting one. So <laughs> the way that we do it is we assume spherical geometry. That's the mathematical approach. So we could assume humans are spherically symmetric, right? <laughs> What they call this solution appropriately is inversion, right? It's a, it's a simple name for it, solving the inverse problem. And the geometry had been worked out, and the crux of it is an integral. 
It's what's called the Abel Transform. And it was first solved mathematically in 1826 by this guy named Abel. And it's, it's kind of like the second fundamental theorem of calculus where you take a derivative through an integral. It's kind of like that, um, but just with a really messy, nasty set of derivatives and integrals that cannot be solved analytically. And he figured out a way you could actually invert the variables. And then it suddenly was solvable, not analytically, but it was solvable numerically. So a lot of things had to be developed for this to make any sense. You had to have numerical computation. You had to be able to record and observe a stellar occultation at very high speed. So suddenly by the time the late 60s came around, there were computers that were fast enough. There were imaging systems that could do it. I mean, we're still talking photographic plates and strip charts. I mean, it's primitive by today's standards, but it was actually the minimum you needed to do it. And they put the pieces together and actually figured out how to make it happen. And then that teed up the 70s to just go bonkers with this method and develop it you know, further and study almost every planet in the solar system using it. Wow. Sorry, what are strip... What did you use this very old way to collect data that I do not know? <laughs> yeah, so a strip chart is like a printer feed that is coming out in real time. So it can be like a... You know, you, you, you may have seen like an old seismograph where it has a needle on a rolling piece of paper. That's kind of a strip chart. Strip chart can also be printed out text, like a typewriter feed coming out. And that's how they did it for this. They just printed out the data as it was being recorded on photomultiplier tubes. And it was an electric current. So the current was recorded. A typewriter typed it out in real time. And then they later put that onto punch cards and, and fed it into the computer. Like how the wow signal, it was just a strong, yeah, strong radio signal that was thought to maybe originate from some unknown source, potentially aliens, and it was called the wow signal because of the big wow that was written on, I think, the, what did you call it, a strip chart? On the strip chart associated with, with the well, data collection. Well, I guess collection. before computer, before like ADCs or analog to digital converters, they were literally just using this for all instruments, so... We've probably seen a result in astronomy that's from these strip charts. We definitely have. Well, so there's a, there's a cool story component to this, and it's part of the reason I chose this paper. This was a great observation. They, they did all this math, and then they applied it to an observation of Neptune occulting a distant star. For this observation, they have seven observers in six locations. Three of them did not detect the occultation. That's very common in this and then they got four observations, two from Mount Stromlo and two from two different observatories in Japan. And the data was actually really high quality. They, they did their inversion, and the result of inversion, the, the key measurements, is temperature in the atmosphere of Neptune. So temperature versus altitude in the atmosphere. And so instead of just saying, like, the temperature is 100, they found how the temperature changes as you go up and down, which was incredibly useful, but th their data was really high quality. So about a year ago or so, I was visiting my collaborator at MIT, and he had just changed offices and had to move everything from his lab into a new lab. And so he took all the old filing cabinets full of decades old random shit, and he put it into one place and said, Will, I saved this for you to go through to see if there's anything here you want to save. Otherwise, I'll chuck it. So I was going through, found some interesting stuff, some old graphs, some notes, and found a file labeled 1968 and pulled it out. And here was a copy of their original strip chart containing all the readouts from the machine, their times and flux measurements. And it was on, you know, that perforated old-fashioned typewriter paper that was just so flimsy. And I took pictures of it, and I've been transcribing it. I have to go and, like, type in each number, believe it or not, to get this data. And so the sonification that I played with and did in real time in two-tone was actually one of the halves of the light curves from this observation from Japan. And this is, it was the second half. So it started off with there being low flux, the star was blocked, and then it ended going higher and you heard the star then emerge from behind Neptune. So you had to hand transcribe this. Still am, yes. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's it could be a lot worse, but it's it's super tedious. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to be taking you from your transcribing duties to record <laughs> yeah, it's this been episode. Yeah, the back burner. I'll be honest, and I can't yet analyze it because I need a coordinate in order to be able to know where on the planet this occultation course so you can imagine like the star moves behind the planet in this reference frame and so i need to know mm, where mm. across the planet that star cord went and so because i have almost no documentation this is actually hard to do so my advisor and i are working on that solution which i think we'll figure out but once i do i'll be able to reprocess this and a whole bunch of other data on neptune and so i've already done a bunch with uranus and it's it's going great but this this is a watershed paper. Here are some of the first they did from this paper. The first oblateness measurement of Neptune. First temperature of the atmosphere of Neptune. First density of the atmosphere of Neptune. The precise astrometry of Neptune, exactly where it was located at a specific time. They proved that inversion could work and then made it possible to study all of the atmospheres in the solar system using stellar occultations. And you heard there were some spikes in the sonification those spikes, they actually determined yeah. were real fluctuations in the atmosphere of the body. They couldn't process it, but I hopefully will. And maybe it could be wave activity in the atmospheres. So this this is a paper I'm going to make sure I cite in my dissertation and any other publications I do where I use the inversion approach. What does wave activity in the atmosphere mean? It could be a lot of different kinds of waves, but what it likely means is, is some sort of turbulence, some sort of variation of atmospheric temperature with altitude. That's wild. Other things I discovered in this little exploration were a bunch of magnetic tapes. Unfortunately, the magnetic tapes are tough to read. Nobody has the equipment. MIT doesn't have the equipment. BU doesn't have the equipment. Uh, I connected with someone who worked at NASA JPL. They don't have the equipment. When NASA needs someone to digitize their archival, like Apollo tapes, they use this one-man operation up in Eugene, Oregon, who has the equipment. And so I've been in touch with him. Uh, at some point, I will you know, get out there or send him these magnetic tapes, and we can see if there's any usable data on them. I really feel like you should write an astrobite or some sort of blog post on this because this is really interesting. Like I've never heard of anyone, any grad student doing something like taking data that's written <laughs> on pieces of paper or, you know, just this historical data and, and analyzing it again. Well, thanks. It's really cool. This is definitely an anomaly. I have, you know, the vast, vast majority of my data has been stored and maintained well is on the PDS, the planetary data system, which is a NASA-maintained archive for all planetary data. So a lot of things have been incredibly well-maintained, but there are cases when it takes a little bit of work. Well, thank you for that really interesting summary and um, telling us all about how you became fluent in French. Now let's move in to my space sound, which I guess I can't give any clues because it'll make it too obvious. It is kind of around the theme of the episode, so I'm going to play it. y'all have any guesses i think it was i forget the specific name of the plot but i would guess that it's either frbs or pulsars no <laughs> i really wanted oh. it to be hard okay which one is it frbs or pulsars <laughs> <laughs> can you can you hear the dispersion measure from the pulse <laughs> Yeah. What did you think the same? Will, I was going to say a really far away laser gunfight. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So which? So which is? It? it did kind of sound like a laser gunfight. I could see that. So this is one of the most famous fast radio bursts. Well, at least it used to be, and now I guess. With that instrument in Canada discovering hundreds of fast radio bursts, it's become less talked about, but it's fast radio burst 121102. And data from a paper in 2017, which was published in Nature by Chatterjee et al. 
So fast radio bursts are dispersed, and dispersion measure is actually a proxy for distance because the density of electrons the FRB had to travel to between when it was emitted and our telescopes um, determines how dispersed it actually is. And so that's why we see different frequencies of light coming in at different times, because different frequencies are more, you know, refracted as they travel through the universe um, and take, take longer to arrive at our instrument. Just like when you see optical light going through a prism in that Pink Floyd album cover, this is the radio analog to that. And this sonification was actually made by my undergrad advisor, Casey Law, who really sort of introduced me to fast radio bursts. And the reason I chose this is because although I don't work on fast radio bursts anymore, they were my first experience in radio astronomy research and kind of pushed me to want to stay in physics and astronomy. I just found them so fascinating. Um, and they're definitely, I think, at least in the last 15 years. So the first fast radio burst was found by Duncan Lorimer in 2007. It was originally called the Lorimer Burst. In the last 15 years, this is definitely the most landmark discovery in radio astronomy. The space between where they were emitted and where we observed them sort of leaves a fingerprint on them, so they can be used as probes for potentially cosmology. I have two thoughts. Okay, go for it. The first thought is that I became friends with somebody in the spring in New York, Elizabeth Narkovic, who turns out to be the cousin of, I think his name's David Narkovic, the grad student who discovered the first burst with Duncan Lorimer in 2007. Oh, at WVU? Yeah. The second thing that I was thinking about is that the dispersion measure that you mentioned that causes the different frequencies to arrive at different times and creates that characteristic like pew sound. Yeah. The way that the sound of lightsabers in star wars was created takes advantage of the same phenomenon i forget specifically how they made it but if you take like a really taut metal cable and you hit it then the sound waves travel at different frequencies through it so when they bounce back you get the same sound and the same thing happens on a frozen lake when you throw a stone and it hits it then those reverberations travel back to you at different frequencies exactly and you get a sound so it actually, laser beams were very much uh, on the money, I think, Will. Yeah. I never knew that about lightsabers, though. Interesting. I, I have to look into it a bit more because no one's, like, I've never heard anyone who works on fast radio bursts talk about that comparison, which I think is really interesting. So hmm. thank you for sharing. <laughs> Thanks for the sound, the space yeah. sound. Yeah. Thanks for listening and for all the great insight. Okay, so now let's move in to a different type of transient, but still a transient all the same. Transients all the same. Alex, do you want to describe your paper on supernovae? Definitely. I'll set the timer at two minutes. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 20. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so my paper is called On the Frequency of Type 1 and Type 2 Supernovae by Dalaporta just Dalaporta in 1973. It was published in Astronomy and Astrophysics, and it became, a year later, part of the Astrophysics and Space Science Library book series. And I think that's relevant because when it was published in the book series, the abstract of the paper became one sentence. This is the sentence. From the present evidence, it appears that the supernovae of type 1 and 2 are related to quite different stellar populations. There's a one sentence that's summary it. for it. That's the abstract. That's the, that's the one sentence summary. Um, and you can tell that like 1970s, people were really kind of shooting from the hip, back of the envelope calculations. Supernova science was very much in its infancy. And in this paper, the author provides a really brief overview of what we know so far, which in the way of statistical analysis of supernovae is really not that much. In fact, they say, and I quote, We shall limit ourselves to stressing once and for all that many of the results are affected by errors of the order of 100% without computing them systematically. (laughs) We don't know, but we think everything's a suspect. Could you imagine putting something like that in a paper nowadays? (laughs) It's basically saying that everything that we're about to propose could be wrong. And then the paper goes on to do some really exciting things. For some context... 
by the 1960s and 1970s, we were discovering around 20 supernovae a year. And in two years, the Vera Rubin Observatory, when it comes online, is going to find about a million supernovae a year. What are we finding right now? Uh, I think it's two or three orders of magnitude less than that. Like a thousand? So still about a thousand, uh, hundreds to thousands. Okay, so the paper goes on to summarize what we know so far, which is that type 2 supernovae, those are supernovae with hydrogen-rich spectra, are only found in spiral galaxies and on the outer arms of the spiral galaxies when you find them there. So they're probably the explosions of young stellar populations because this is where most of the star formation happens within a spiral galaxy. Then they take some data from the 1950s and the 1960s, estimates of the fraction of mass in our galaxy that's divided between the halo, the old disk, and the young disk, and they use this as a proxy for the fraction of young and old stellar populations you would find in any spiral galaxy. Like I said, shooting from the hip here. They just took like the, the ratio and assumed it would be the same for all of them. Correct. And they conclude that one type 2 supernova occurs per 10 to the 10 stellar mass of young population matter every 100 years. This is like this long-standing idea that, on average, a supernova goes off in a random galaxy every hundred years in that galaxy. That, that has held up over the years. And there is thinking that we're overdue for a supernova, a galactic supernova, for that reason. May or may not be overdue for a supernova in our galaxy. They make this estimate just assuming... Sounds like we are. <laughs> I'm sure the two are It's like we're overdue for an earthquake in the Bay Area. Wow. Well, I'm excited for your paper in the next episode. All about that. <laughs> okay, so take that as a given. They make that calculation in the first part of the paper. Next, they note, and this is this is the part that I really want to hammer home, because I think it's really exciting. For type one events that are devoid of hydrogen in their spectra. They note that many have occurred in spiral galaxies, many being 29 at the time, and that this is entirely incompatible with the locations where we find novae in our galaxy. And at the time, the two were often compared because spectroscopically, novae and type 1 supernovae look very similar. Now we believe novae to be the white dwarf accretion and quick brightening of a system that doesn't actually undergo a supernova. So there is, there is a physical connection there. And so because the two were seen to occur in completely different environments, they say that there must be two different types of type 1 supernovae, older ones and younger ones. And they say, and I quote, one may venture to assume that Type 1 supernovae are a mixture not yet distinguished by two different types of events occurring in two different stellar populations, which may be indicated tentatively as SN1Y, Y for young, and SN1O, O for old. They were wrong about that, right? They were right that type 1 supernovae are comprised of young and old populations, but the nomenclature that they proposed in this paper did not catch on. So we now know type 1, hydrogen-poor supernovae, to be comprised of two kind of big groups. Massive stars that have lost their hydrogen and still die young, those are now known to be type 1b or 1c supernovae. And old white dwarf stars that over time have burned through most of their hydrogen and those are type 1a supernovae so they're actually right on the money in finding young and old stellar populations which is really exciting this i think is not potentially the first paper to propose it but is part of this kind of growing wave of people that lent support for this theory that type 1 supernovae are actually a couple of different physical phenomena Last thing that is done in this paper. The author compared the explosion rates of type 2 and type 1Y, type 1 young supernovae, 
to the Saul-Peter birth rate function, which is the number of stars created per unit time per unit parsec in a given magnitude range. Okay, this is how often stars are forming. This is where they really do some back of the envelope calculations. They say, for example, the average star is the mass of the sun and the average brightness of the sun. They say the typical stellar density is that of our local neighborhood. And they add this all together and they find that the birth rates of main sequence stars brighter than an absolute magnitude of minus six match the death rates of type two and type one Y or young explosions. So mag absolute magnitude of minus six is kind of the key number that they found. It's pretty bright. And for well-established main sequence magnitude age curves and mass curves, they find this corresponds to about 10 solar masses. So their main conclusion is that the lower limit on the mass of a star that you would need to explode as a type 2 or a 1y is about 10 solar masses. And now, what, 50 years later, our best understanding is 8 solar masses as the lower limit. And even that 8 solar masses is poorly understood. I mean, people are running state-of-the-art simulations to better constrain exactly what happens right around that eight solar masses so this is crazy by just doing this like i mean you could do this integral yourself in in a minute they find about 10 solar masses is the lower limit for core collapse explosions oh that was pretty close it's definitely a set of bold predictions. I should also mention they did this analysis with 46 supernovae. We now have tens of thousands of supernovae. This paper laid out the mass limit for core collapse, the different stellar populations for type 1 and type 2, the locations in the galaxies where they might occur. I mean, this is like really a, I think, a heavy hitting paper for the five pages that it encapsulates. I love papers like this where like the math is not so tricky just nobody thought to do it and you could just have done it if only you had thought about it right you would have been the one to publish it yeah it's interesting i feel like we underestimate how much we're like building on the backs of other scientists and how much you know belief we put in their results like i mean i'm sure these have been checked but yeah just like I'm using, for example, I use simulations that like a couple people wrote. I'm not looking necessarily at all the source code, whereas here it's much easier to um, sort of check your, like you have someone reviewing your paper and they can actually do the, the calculation themselves, like with drinking their coffee, reviewing the paper, but they can't redo my simulations. So maybe you shouldn't trust current scientists as much as older scientists. I don't know. It's not a bad point, really. It's a little scary, but it's like you're nonchalant, like all science is bogus. So I actually read this interesting op-ed in the New York Times in the past week entitled Science Has a Nasty Photoshopping Problem, written by Elizabeth Bick. And she is a microbiologist and I think left her post as part of an effort to uncover and explore how much photoshopping literal photoshopping there is in biology papers and showing like these these blots that were shown and, and there are pictures in the in the paper in the article that do it justice but they're like just rotated and then pasted and it's like four of the same things it's so obvious to the eye and all these papers that she found this in ended up being retracted but it took years for it to go through a process and it's like you know, it is a little scary. We, we've developed methods that, that make science incredibly powerful, but there's no fact-checking in a lot of this. Especially because there's such a race to publish, right? Mm -hmm. And the impact of your results depends a lot, like can literally dictate what your career will look like, right? So if you, I mean, for the unethical scientist, if you come up with some really crazy result and doctor up some data, like... You know, maybe that will make the difference. Unfortunately, don't do this, anyone who's listening. But, you know, like people could think about doing that to, to further their careers, which is really scary. I read very recently about an article of a student at Cambridge in physics 
who on the side started studying uh, unethical paper writing and got many papers like redacted because he investigated specifically there's a thing apparently that some people do where you take uh, a series of terms that are specific to the field that you want to write about let's say uh, it's like fluid transport fluid dynamics in physics you take this phrase and you google translate it to a random language and then you translate it back and it creates a phrase that's similar but not that exact phrase like liquid motion or movement or something like that and you can take entire paragraphs put them into google translate and do this to generate nonsense paragraphs that sound scientific and end up bulking out papers if you need to very very quickly churn them out so like paper mills will pay people to do this to churn out documentation that sounds scientific and doesn't actually have any substance behind it yeah another good way to do this is to just look for cross correlations right and that's what i think uh this the writer of this op-ed did is just like reverse image searched using common images and found there they show up in 30 papers and so they've clearly been ripped off from the original one and yeah you grab these funny phrases and just keep searching for those keywords and you find them you know, if it appears the exact same phrase in 10 papers, something's gotten weird. I mean, this student just started doing the translation and the translated words, like the translated phrases, Googling them and seeing how many papers popped up. And almost all of those were fraudulent papers. So I feel like you could easily do some like quick identification stuff just to filter through some more suspect papers. Yeah, maybe that's the one thing that science has going for it. There's not so much money as to corrupt people to be completely absurd. Like in finance, I mean, the amount of white-collar crime is ridiculous. Uh, a thought I raised earlier about the fact that my paper was written in French was that writing in English and publishing in English is somewhat not inclusive. I mean, a lot of people speak English. English is the most spoken language in the world, but it still obviously is a disadvantage to people who speak it, you know, as a second language influently uh, or who don't speak it at all. So is it is, is it a good thing that we've trended toward making English the language of science? It makes things extremely Anglo-centric such that, and, you know, most English-speaking countries are tend to be really rich countries, it makes it harder for people that don't speak English to break into science. But then also, we can't count on people translating papers um, into every language spoken on Earth. So, Well, I was thinking this could be another place where machine learning could step in and automatically translate papers. I'm sure some of this exists. Like you can have Google Translate translate PDFs Obviously, it's not great with scientific terms and things can get a little weird, but I imagine, you know, this is an area that we might see some major improvements in. So we just basically have to wait on the natural language processing people to <laughs> to make our own field more inclusive. <laughs> Thank you for those awesome summaries of the landmark papers. Honestly, I can hear like a different tone in your voices. I feel like it's like you're especially passionate about these papers. I don't know. I felt that. I'll leave it up to the listener to see if they agree with me. But um, okay, Alex, do you want to take it away with your one sentence summary? Sure. I'll take it directly from the abstract of the Astrophysics and Space Science Library book series version of this paper. From the present evidence, it appears that the supernovae of type 1 and type 2 are related to quite different stellar populations. Nice. What about you, Will? If you travel far enough down the rabbit hole of your research and you finally reach the bottom, there can actually be really cool things there, as I found from reading this historic paper. Wow. Love that. Okay, so we already did a lot of discussion about the ethics of papers in this episode, or the ethics of publishing, I guess, in general, which is really interesting. But let's do just a quick... One question, lightning round. So each of you, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of a landmark discovery in astronomy? 
Like, what is that for you? And it has to be outside your subfield. I think of Edwin Hubble discovering uh, that spiral nebulae were not part of the Milky Way and were, in fact, other galaxies. Ooh, sick. Okay. I think of the Jocelyn Bell discovery of the first pulsar that was not awarded the Nobel Prize. Very fitting for our sonification today. For me, I think CMB, Cosmic Microwave Background, Penzias and Wilson. Nice. Ooh, classic. Unexpected discovery. Very unexpected. Great. So thanks again, Alex and Will, for telling us about your research. Uh, good luck to Alex applying to postdocs this round. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to you both. This is a really fun episode. Um, and that concludes episode 63 of Astro Soundbites, our take on landmark papers, part one. You can find the two papers that we talked about today in the links in the show notes. And remember, our sonification competition is still open until November 18th. You can do it in two minutes or less. You can do it in two minutes and 10 seconds or less. That's another theme of this episode. Just like, what can you do in two minutes or less? (laughs) (laughs) Not this episode, as it turns out. You can also find a link to learn more about the sonification challenge in the show notes or listen to our very cheesy but cute press conference episode a couple episodes back. You know this already, but we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Mm-hmm.